academic so he's the one who came up with the dunbar number that is the the maximum number of friends that you can have not maximum number of people who you can realistically maintain in your social circle is 150 and he came out with a book in 2021 called friends understanding the power of our most important relationships and uh, in the book he lists the seven pillars of friendship and to, to boil it down, the more things you have in common, the more likely you will be to have friends. So I notice when I go back to Australia, I feel more in common and I feel more at ease with people than I do in the United States. So it's a more homogeneous society and people have a similar sense of humor, which is another one of the seven pillars. So similar personality, similar sense of humor, a similar ethnic group, a similar taste in music. Okay, these are all some of the seven pillars of friendship. And uh, I noticed when I was in Australia for two months, I'd walk down the street, I just felt more in common with uh, people as I just passed them in the street or say g'day in the street. It was easier to strike up conversations. So I've lived 90% of my life in the United States, yet that early imprinting from nine of my first 11 years being in Australia is still very much in my psychology. On the other hand, when I was in Outback Australia and I, I'd run into a Jew, I would be overjoyed. And I only converted to Judaism at age 27. So that, that got written into my psychology. So what's so important about friendship? right? And uh, very basic beginning here, we tend to underestimate the significance of psychological well-being as the bedrock on which our success in life is founded. So when you're happy or angry or sad or mad, that's going to have a profound effect on how you think about the world. And you see this with the, the distant right, the despair that pervades many of the people who, who populate uh, more extreme forms of politics. Uh, you, you see how that despair leads them to feeling alienated from everyone around them and then to feeling hopeless and to then needing some form of connection with other people. And so if they can't have friendly, loving connection, then they want to be noticed. If you can't be, be noticed, then you just become increasingly hateful until people are forced to acknowledge your, your presence. So if our sense of well-being is significantly diminished, we are likely to slide into depression, which leads to a downward spiral into ill health. If our mood is positive and everything is upbeat, we're not only more willing to engage with others socially, but we approach everything we do with optimism and enthusiasm. We'll work harder to get even the most boring tasks done. Isn't hard to see how happiness, sense of positivity, and a can do attitude can spread rapidly through a population. So, if you connect with other people so that you create this shared reality, all right, and then you develop a rhythm. outsider, then we typically feel lonely, agitated, and we actively work to try to remedy the situation. Few of us could cope with living completely isolated on a desert island with no prospect of rescue. So loneliness takes its toll on us. We do our best to look for opportunities to meet people. 
because only once we are part of a group do we usually feel properly human. We feel more relaxed when we know where we belong. We feel more satisfied with life when we know we are wanted. So loneliness may well be an evolutionary alarm signal that something is wrong. It's a prompt that you need to do something about your life and fast. Even just the perception of being socially isolated will disrupt your physiology with adverse consequences for your immune system as well as your psychological well-being. That, if unchecked, can lead to a downward spiral and early death. Now, with all these studies talking about how important friendship is, they don't really take into account genetics. So is it friendship that leads people with more friends to have happier, more fulfilling lives? And the lack of friendship that, that leads people who are lonely to have lousy lives? Or is it the people with a certain genetic predisposition, right? The same genetic predisposition that makes people more successful and uh, more socially well-adjusted and leads people to be more outgoing, to have a more socially effective personality. So to be a little more outgoing than, than introverted, to be more extroverted than introverted is part of a socially effective personality, to be conscientious to be low in neuroticism, to have openness to new experience and to have, have at least a moderate to high amount of wanting to get along with other people. These are all the traits of a socially effective personality. So our personality, it's largely formed by our genetics. So I would suspect that happy people are genetically predisposed. <clears throat> I'm uh, here to convince the five of you in the audience that aren't actually on Facebook that the whole thing is completely overrated and all your prejudices are correct. <laughs> <coughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> there are lots of us not on Facebook. Okay, I don't know what the rest of you are going to do for the next 14 minutes, but <coughs> uh, I guess... Uh, at some level, I mean, this has happened before with email, I think, back in the early, late 80s, early 90s, and that kind of thing. But when, particularly when Facebook came on stream, I think there was a kind of um, promissory note made on the tin can by the, the techies that created it, which said, this is going to open you up to the global village. You're going to have hundreds of thousands of friends and all over the world. And the real question is, is that so? Uh, the short answer is... Uh, no. <laughs> Despite the fact that Facebook allows you to put 5,000 friends up on, on the can, as it were, uh, in fact, most people don't. And if, um, as a result of sort of this uh, discussion about who, who, who your friends are on, on Facebook, Facebook actually started to look at their own data. And when they did an analysis of the entire, whatever it is, 400 million Facebook users and looked at all the numbers of friends people had, uh, the average was actually about 150. The modal value, the most common value, is somewhere between 120 and 130, which I think is about right, because you've got to leave a little room before the 150 uh, for Granny, who's sort of not really online yet, and, and you know, a few odd people like that. Um, but the key to the, the issue is really, even though you sign up and can sign up lots and lots of people, uh, in fact, you spend most of your time talking to only a very few of them. These are Facebook's own data here. Oh, I mean, I just don't think he, he's he's acquainted with the, the Luke Ford community where we're filled with you know, love and, oh, what is it that I, 
what is it that I put on my <laughs> Twitter bio? Come on. Uh, oh, yeah, my tradition teaches a message of radical inclusion and love where you sit down and learn Torah with me and learn love. Okay, this is, this is a place of radical inclusion and love here. So we're, we're not just... We're not just any any ordinary online group, all right? Take things to the to the next level here. All right, back to this uh, excellent book by Robin Dunbar. So when we're isolated, our brains simply don't work as well, right? And uh, short periods of loneliness don't tend to have long-term adverse effects, but persistent loneliness correlated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease, depression, and dementia, as well as poor sleeping habits, which in turn obviously have adverse psychological consequences. So my question is, is it the persistent loneliness causing all these bad things, or are all these bad things, including loneliness, part and parcel of certain genetic predispositions? So the important thing about friends is you need to have them before disaster befalls you. So I remember when I got really sick in 1988, I was basically bedridden for six years. And uh, one psychiatrist later said about 20 years later, oh, this was Luke Ford's face-saving way of, of failing. He was failing at life because he didn't have enough friends. And this was his face-saving way of uh, failing at life. So people are only likely to make the effort to help you if they are already your friend. We're also much less likely to help strangers or people we only know slightly. But making friends requires a great deal of effort and time. It's not something you can just magic up over a cup of coffee. But at least because everyone else is already embedded in friendship networks of their own. And to make time and room for you as a new friend means that they'll have to sacrifice a friendship with someone else. So young people behave like careful shoppers. They're trying to sample as widely as they can among the pool of potential friends available to them to find the best set of life partners and friends. So they distribute their time more widely. They have more time available than when they get older. So they're often happy to sacrifice relationship quality for quantity. They can sample a larger portion of the available population. So people in their teens and 20s will often have you know, friends with a much wider variety of people than once they settle down with a family. They'll have fr friendships with people of different religions, different ethnic, racial groups. Uh, they'll try out a much wider sampling of the population. Now, you settle down, you get married, and your free time is decimated by the early years of childcare. You have less time and energy for socializing, so people tend to shed their casual friends and concentrate what time, mental effort, and energy remains on a handful of really important friends. Also, people who are introverted tend to have a smaller number of friends, but more intense friendships. People who are extroverted have more friends, but usually more shallow friendships. And the final phase in the human life cycle seems to kick in around the 60s. We start to lose friends through death. We lose friends when we are younger. Uh, we anyone sad 
there, and they're looking at the number of people just measured in different ways you have, you know, sort of traffic with that you're talking to. And it's sort of divided up between those who have only about 50 friends, 150 friends, and 500 friends. And although the number of friends listed is increasing by an order of magnitude. Whoa, speaking of friends, Laponius is here. Welcome, Laponius. Okay, so we all tend to have about the same amount of emotional capital. That is the time that we have for spending with people, spending with friends. Introverts choose to spread, spread this thickly among just a few people. Extroverts choose to spread this thinly among many people. So extroverts tend to have friendships that are on average much weaker than those of introverts. So someone's willingness to support you is directly related to the time that you spend with them and their perceived emotional closeness to you. So extroverts may be less likely to be supported by their friends. So introverts feel less secure about the social world, so they prefer to invest more heavily in a few people who they know really well and they can rely on. Laponius, you've got a friend. You've got a friend. All right, we've almost got a minion here. Mr. White Male, Luke, do you need an IT guy? I'll move out to LA. That, that reminds me when I met Dennis Prager in Tampa Bay, Florida, and he said, oh, if you move to, to move to LA, I might have, might have a job for you. Didn't... Uh, didn't work out. Magnitude by a factor of 10. The number of close friends, if you like, that most of your time on Facebook is spent talking to is actually quite small. It's only somewhere between three and, three, three and um, uh, uh, about 10 or so. And the reason for that is there appears to be a cognitive limit on the number of individuals we can keep in, in a sort of relationship with us. And this comes off the back of work we were doing on the size of social groups in monkeys and apes. And, and these are the key data here. This is average group. Okay, this is Robin Dunbar, a great academic expert on friendship and on evolutionary psychology. So he notes that people who tend to not spend much time with their family and relatives tend to spend a lot more time with friends. And people who spend a great deal of time with their family spend obviously less time with friends. So. Our networks, social networks, pretty much limited to about 150 slots. And so we all tend to first slot in our family members. Then if we have any spare slots left, we start filling them with unrelated friends. So friends in this sense are a relatively recent phenomenon, probably a consequence of the dramatic reduction in family size that has occurred over the last two centuries, especially in Europe and North America. So none of the six main kinship naming systems in the world have terms for anyone who is less closely related than cousins. So this is the natural limit for human communities. Anyone beyond that magic circle of cousins is a stranger of no particular importance. Smiling faces, smiling faces tell lies, and I got proof. Oh boy. So in traditional communities, anyone joining the community had to be assigned some kind of fictional kinship. They were adopted as a son or a brother by someone. And until that happens, they have no place in the community. A little bit like converting to Orthodox Judaism, really have to be adopted into a family, into a particular synagogue, and to show that you can get along there before you're going to be able to graduate through the whole conversion process. Conversion to Orthodox Judaism is primarily a matter of, of being able to read and respond appropriately to social cues. So 
when you're adopted into a community such as Orthodox Judaism, then your adopting family's kin becomes your kin with the same rights and obligations. That's why we, we do much the same with adopted children and with very close friends. So we tell our children to address them as Auntie Mary or Uncle Jim, even though they're not biological aunts and uncles. So kinship is central one of the main organizing principles of uh, the human world. We tend to be, all things being equal, much more willing to help family and relatives than we are friends. So you can call this the kinship premium. So think if someone contacts you out of the blue and explains that they are your long-lost third cousin and you share a great-great-grandmother. You might check, see if this is really so, and then you may well offer them a bed for the night. And would they like to stay longer? But if the person says they're a friend of a friend of a friend, your response is likely to be, well, why don't you try the days in down the road to see if there's a room available and perhaps, you know, one day you'll pop around for a cup of tea. So the kinship premium derives from one of the most fundamental principles in evolutionary biology, the theory of kin selection. We are more likely to behave altruistically and less likely. to maintaining friendships than to maintaining your ties with your family and relatives. So distant family Group size in different species of monkeys and different species of apes, these are chimpanzees, gorillas, uh, uh, gibbons, as it happens, against a measure of brain size. And you can see, particularly for the apes, this is a very clear line. This, uh, this block here turns out to be three separate grades rather than defined grades. Well, my sound problems are coming back. I thought I had them fixed. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Time to talk to you again. Oh, man. This is embarrassing. I only have one friend, Luke Ford. I have thousands of pictures of him on a wall in a secret room at home. I disagree, Luke. I have thousands of good friends here on MySpace. Luke, can we get an update video on Millennial Woes? Your videos on him were hilarious. Yeah, what's going on with Millennial Woes these days? David needs to send Luke a new mic. <laughs> Guess you could re reconsider that uh, IT job. Man, I thought I had my, oh, got it. I thought I had my sound problems fixed, and I don't. Ouch. Okay, so where did I end off? Friendships tend to be much more costly to maintain than family relationships, right? Friendships, you have to maintain them. Family relationships, you can go years without seeing each other. It was like 10 years, I think, w w between seeing my, my 
one time I went 10 years without seeing my brother. Uh, I went, you know, I went to about the same time without seeing, seeing my father, right? So distant family relationships only need the occasional reminder to keep ticking over. Friendships die fast if they are not maintained at the, the appropriate levels of contact. So emotional closeness with family and relatives, you know, hardly budges even if you don't see each other for years. All my family and relatives are in Australia. I only get over to Australia every, you know, five, six, ten years or so. And then there's one group of people who sit uncomfortably between family and friends, and those are the in-laws, relatives by marriage. So in a bonded social group, your friends keep an eye on you and make sure that you, they stay with you even if you decide to wander off. So this even applies online, all right? If, if you've got friends and you're doing, you know, weird, quirky, disturbing stuff online, you know, if you've got real friends, they'll try to rein you in. I think so many people get into trouble in America today because they, they don't have those friendships and so they don't have that, that safety net underneath them so that when they, when they go, go haywire, when, when they start heading in a wrong direction, then uh, there's no one there to catch them. So uh, brain size positively correlated with the size of uh, friendship circles. So you can maintain more friendships if you have a bigger brain. And also maintaining friendships, developing friendships will also tend to enlarge uh, white matter in your brain. Women tend to have more friends than men. So women who lived in households with more people had a larger amygdala than women who lived with fewer individuals. But there's no effect of household size on amygdala size for males. Men in larger households had larger orbitofrontal cortices, whereas women exhibited no consistent pattern. Women who expressed greater satisfaction with their relationships and who said they had more opportunities to confide in others had larger volumes in these two areas meaning the amygdala and the orbitofrontal cortices. And then there's a poignant moment in a BBC TV documentary on autism where an 11-year-old boy with Asperger syndrome turns to his mother and asks, what is a friend, mummy? Can I have one? And then after a pause playing with his toys, how do I get a friend? So he understood that the children he mixed with called each other friends. And there seemed to be some mysterious process involved. He did not quite fully understand. How do you go about getting a friend? He tried asking other children to be his friend, but it didn't seem to work. And he didn't really know why, and now he is genuinely stumped. So the autistic tend to understand less about what's going on around them than is really there. They're not really seeing the emotional dimension to the interactions around them, while the paranoid tend to read far more into interactions and other people than is really there. So a lot of us are like this autistic boy. We all have moments of puzzlement when our overtures of friendship are rejected. A friend lets us down. We don't understand why. We all have these moments of social anguish. They're an important aspect of friendship. Friends are not all that easy to acquire and to maintain. Do we really have to refer to it as white matter? That's what it says in the book. Look, you need to become an influencer within your kihila. Most complex social group of all is a honeybee colony, says Laponius. 
there you find hierarchy and respect. So what is going on with millennial woes, gentlemen? So friendships, not easy to acquire and not easy to maintain. They require work and it can take months and years for a friendship to blossom. And we all vary in our ability to maintain friendships. So one end is this autistic young boy who's completely defeated by the very concept of friendship. And then at the other is the perfect host such as myself who seems to know by effortless intuition what to say to enliven a social occasion, how to bring the best out in everyone and who would hit it off with whom. Most of us lie somewhere between these two extremes, lurching from one social minefield to another relationship catastrophe are just about managing to keep ourselves afloat. Then there are the times when circumstances leave us stranded on a social desert island, watching enviously as everyone else seems to be having the social time of their lives. Laponius, I haven't seen you for weeks. What have you been doing, man? Uh, do you have a note from your doctor? I mean, you've gone missing. I, I, hope, I hope you've been out there making a lot of money, man. So the human social world is the most complex phenomenon in the observed universe, perhaps far more complex than the mysterious processes that create stars and engineer the orbits of the planets. Social skills that make this world possible are astonishingly sophisticated, yet we take them for granted and hardly ever give them a second thought. So if you want to know how someone really thinks of you, check out how they touch you. There is an honesty about touch that cannot be matched by any other sense, right? The, the penis never lies. Certainly a great deal more honesty than can be inferred from the words that they may speak to you. A touch is worth a thousand words. A bit like this. But the key thing is if you plug humans into this regression equation and, and the human brain data are from the same uh, data set as all the primate data, we get a predicted value off the great ape equation of about 150. That's what's now... Okay, Laponia says that uh, making a living is a demanding mistress. I, I, making a living, earning money, as long as it's done legally and, and ethically, I think is about, about the most ennobling thing that you can do. You, you will tend to you know, meet people, tend to get along with people. You'll be very much ensconced in reality, because if you're not in reality, you won't be making a living. You make money by meeting other people's needs. It's uh, good for your mindset. It's good for your social circle. It's good for your bank account. It's good for your self-esteem. So touch is intensely intimate in a way that no other sense is. Words are slippery, right? We're all pretty much skilled at lying, but the way someone puts their hand on your shoulder or strokes your arm says a great deal more about how they view their friendship with you than anything else else that they could do. I remember I met this woman at an Orthodox synagogue uh, and I, I went out with her and she told me about she, she got two abortions and then she invited me to a party at uh, I think Break the Fast, Break a Yom Kippur Fast at her house and I think I made an inappropriate joke and she explained to the table that you know Luke likes inappropriate humor. And I've never forgotten the feel of her hand. She put her hand on my leg at one point, and it was just such a warm, cozy, soft, you know, feeling. It was like such an intimate, that beautiful touch that it made me forget about all the abortions that she'd had.
Though there is an intimacy to touch that the other senses lack. Taste and smell, the other two intimate senses, can tell me who you are, but they cannot tell you how you feel about me. So touch is what makes the world of relationships go round. The very intimacy of touch means that we are very sensitive to who touches us and how they do it. So are you a hugger? Press one if you're a hugger. Press two if you hate to be hugged. So being stroked or rocked is calming, creating pleasure and relaxation. The cares of the world slowly drop from your shoulders. We want to be touched by some people, but we shrink from being touched by others. This ambivalence is the bane of our lives. I am willing to stroke you affectionately, but you are not willing to allow me to do it. So we have developed rules that help smooth this pathway. A handshake is fine between strangers. Stroke on the back or a kiss is not. So learning these rules takes most of our childhood and adolescence. The yearning to be touched goes unfulfilled. Press three if you're yearning to be touched. Or we blunder in where we are not welcome. Press four if you're blundering in where you're not welcome. How emotionally close we feel to someone is directly related to how much time we have invested in them. Casual touching has taken a hit with the COVID pandemic. I'm sure it must have happened as I don't think I'm a virgin, but who knows, says Robert. I cannot recall a woman ever touching me. Two abortions. What happened next? Was she attractive? Why did... I don't know. I think it, it just kind of putted out from there, but I've never forgotten the, the feel of her hand on my on my leg. It was just such a warm touch. And I remember there was this quite plain woman. And I, I would never... I never would have desired her. But she had this amazing touch. And I always just had the, the best of intentions. And after a stimulating conversation, I would you know, hug her goodbye. And then something about her touch. Ah, she'd taken Alexander Technique lessons. And so her touch was just amazing. And I would lose my mind. Or another time, there was this woman who knew my father. And so she, she asked me out. And we went for a walk around the, the Sherman Oaks uh, shopping center. And then we stopped by her place, and she was a very plain woman. I had absolutely no interest in her whatsoever. And uh, she offered me a massage, and was like, fine, I'll take a massage. And I still had absolutely no interest in her. And then she flipped me over, and she started massaging my chest and my stomach, and then suddenly, boing! And uh, so I ended up staying the night, and then... Uh, Next morning, I you know say goodbye like like a gentleman, and uh, drive off, and then get a desperate call. She's been in a car accident, and I have to take her to the hospital. So I, I got caught up in in the in the web. Yeah, sometimes when we touch, the honesty is too much. Yeah, she she was attractive, but I didn't found it attractive that uh, she'd had all those abortions. I remember there was another time there was this uh, porn star who was seducing me and uh, she wanted to take me to the hot tub, but first we, we were going to meet for dinner and she ordered a ham salad. And she was like this big breasted porn star who had a, a degree in English. So she was, she was erudite. She knew English literature. She was funny. She was young. She was hot. She's taking me to the hot tub. 
but she orders this ham salad and it just completely completely removes any any sexual desire that I have for her. We are much more likely to laugh at something when we are in a group than when we are alone. So I remember the, going to a movie theater to see Monty Python's 1984 movie, The Meaning of Life, and there are only like three people in the theater, and I just didn't find the movie that funny. Then a few months later, I watched it with my brother and friends, and I was just like laughing every, every minute. The more energetic the dance moves, the more synchronized the members of the group were, the greater the change in pain threshold and the more bonded they felt to the group. Right? So you can you can develop ties with the group just through conversation, but if you add in rituals such as marching together, doing yoga together, davening together, dancing together, the more intense and the more synchronized, more energetic the ritual and trainment, the more powerful the bond. My wife dumped me recently, so I'll probably waste seed pretty often moving forward. Anonymous professor, every seed is sacred. Every sperm is good. Every sperm is needed in your neighborhood. Let the pagans waste theirs on the dusty soil. God will make them pay for each sperm that can't be found. So, my life dramatically improved when I enacted a complete cessation of wanking. So I have not had a wank since June of 2013. Like, how do you think I, I became this transcendent you know, spiritual master? No wanking. Like when you meet me, you'll be glad to shake my hand because this is not a hand that is engaged in self-abuse for nine years, right? Nine years I have been wank free, no fap, right? It's the greatest thing. Like the first couple of weeks were hard, but I felt an increased sense of confidence and I started seeing things more clearly and I wasn't like storing up, you know, erotic scenarios that I could use later. And so I was able to start talking to women more like human beings. And I felt that I was master of my own domain. So I felt better about myself. So my self-esteem approved. I... I felt like I had more discipline. I, I felt, I just felt better. Like colors were brighter. Everything started going better in my life once I completely ceased masturbating. Wasting seeds creates demonic spirits. When did I last kiss a woman on the mouth? Oh, please. I'm a, I'm an old fashioned gentleman. I, I not the type of bloke who will kiss and tell. A beautiful woman is well worth the occasional ham salad. All right, Anonymous Professor says, it hurts. Yeah, I, I can imagine losing, losing one's spouse, but uh, pain shared is half pain and joy shared is twice the joy. So... The number of close friends you have is closely correlated with how engaged you are with your community, the level of trust you have in those among whom you live, your sense of how worthy your life is and how happy you feel. So most of the relationships between these variables work both ways. Increase the sense of community engagement and increases your sense that life is worthwhile. Increase your sense that life is worthwhile and increases how engaged you become with the community. Right? Do more eating and drinking with other people, you'll feel happier. Social eating tends to influence the number of close friends we have and our sense of life satisfaction 
right? That's probably the most dramatic thing you can do to increase the number of friends you have and your sense of life satisfaction in more eating and drinking with other people. Drinking socially influences our sense of engagement with the community and our trust in its members most directly. So engaging in these activities with others strengthens our membership in the wider community, elevates our general sense of well-being and our satisfaction with life, and through these, our health. There's one behavior without which both a conversation and a relationship would be deadly dull. It is surely a smile. Everyone smiles in the same language. So the limit of four for a conversation is a remarkably robust effect. If a fifth person joins a conversation, it will split into two separate conversations within as little as half a minute. And evenings, okay, when the sun goes down, that seems to enhance our social interactions in a special way. And the origins of this are probably quite ancient. You are twice as likely to share genes with a friend as you are with any random person from your neighborhood. Friends are more likely to share the same dopamine receptor gene. Okay, seven pillars of friendship. Having the same language or dialect, growing up in the same location, having had the same educational and career experiences. So medical people hang out with medical people, lawyers hang out with lawyers, having the same hobbies and interests, having the same worldview, which is an amalgam of moral views, religious views, and political views, having the same sense of humor, and having the same musical tastes. So the more of these boxes you tick with someone, the more time you'll be prepared to invest in them and the more emotionally close you will feel towards them. Josh wants to watch me play beer pong. I don't think so. On graduation night of high school, I had a little bit of beer and uh, a wine cooler and and uh, that was about the only time in my life that uh, I got uh, buzzed. And I remember I got up next morning and my father said that uh, I looked <laughs> I looked 10 years older. Okay, so the more of these boxes, seven pillars of friendship, right? It's having the same language, same growing up in the same location, same educational career experiences, same hobbies and interests, same worldview, same sense of humor, same musical tastes. So the more of these boxes that you tick with someone, the more time you'll be prepared to invest in them, the more emotionally close you will feel towards them, the closer they will lie to you in the layers of your social network. The more willing you will be to help them out when they need it, the more likely they will be to help you. Birds of a feather flock together. You gravitate towards people with whom you have more things in common. You like those people who are most like you. Doesn't seem to matter which one of these seven pillars you share in common. The pillars are substitutable, but any one is about as good as any other. There's no hierarchy of preference. So a three-pillar friend is a three-pillar friend, irrespective of which pillars you have in common. So when it comes to Robert Prosper, we have the same language. We did not grow up in the same location. We haven't had the same educational and career experiences. We do have the same hobbies and interests. We have the same worldview, similar sense of humor. I don't know about his musical taste. So Robert Prosper is a four-pillar friend, and you don't treat the four-pillar friend lightly. Robert says, I drink less alcohol than the average Muslim or Mormon. When you first meet someone new, you may invest a lot of time in them. 
may catapult them into one of your inner circles so that you can evaluate where they lie on the seven pillars. That takes time, but once you know where they stand, stand, you can then reduce the time you devote to them to a level appropriate to the number of pillars you have in common. So anyone with a seven-pillar friendship or even a six-pillar friendship, what is that like? As a result, they quietly slide back down through the layers to settle out in the layer appropriate to that number. So friendships are born and not made. You just have to find them. So knowing how to recognize a member of your community cuts through the long-winded process of getting to know someone by having to spend half a lifetime with them. I know you're a member of my community because I instantly recognize your dialect the moment you speak. When I hear a fellow Aussie, it's like, oi, oi, oi. You know the same streets and the same pubs I know. You know the same jokes. You belong to the same religion. So any of these is a rough and ready guide to a shared history. Any one of them will mark you out as someone I can trust because I know how you think. We grew up in the same place. We absorbed the same mores, same attitudes to life and to the wider world. I don't have to explain my jokes to you because you get them right away. I don't even have to finish the punchline because you know the same jokes as me. You even know the way the joke is constructed. So this harks back to a community we grew up in that accounts for the extraordinary attachment that many of us feel to home, the place where we grew up even decades after we moved away. So you can tell a massive amount about a person from just the first sentence, the timber of their voice, the confidence or lack thereof in their voice, the, the dialect, the accent. Britain, we can rec identify where they come from and which social class they belong to in just one sentence. So all societies are social contracts. So freeloaders who take the benefits of the contract but avoid paying the cost erode trust in other members of the community. So think of a dialect as a supermarket barcode exhibited on your forehead. Each individual checks out the barcodes of the people they meet and he agrees to form relationships. Their respective barcodes match. Meeting people we don't know, strangers, is a fact of life. That is how we make new friends, but we don't want to waste time checking out how they sit on each of the seven pillars of friendship. If we did that for each new person we met, there wouldn't be enough time in the day. So we want a simple rubric for deciding whether it's worth investing time and effort getting to know them better. So what's the best criteria? So do we go to shore? Do we work in the same field? Do we have it come from the same place? Right? We judge strangers based on the seven pillars. We select people on the basis of shared ethnicity, religion, political and moral views, and most of all, strongest of all, musical tastes. But kinship remains the single best cue for trustworthiness because it is reinforced by the family community. I known as Dunbar's number. Ironically, it was so christened on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and if you were the person who did that, and you're here today, thank you very much for making my career. <laughs> <coughs> Is this really true? That's the Okay, so how many pillars do I share with Laponius? So I don't think that we come from the same place. I don't think we speak the same dialect. I don't think we have the same educational and career experiences. I do think we maybe share many interests, have a similar worldview, have the same sense of humor. And uh, do you like air supply? Because that will kind of determine whether or not we've got a three-pillar or a four-pillar friendship. I I'd really like, oh, scorpions, bro. Okay, we got a four-pillar friendship, bro. Four minimum. Like, we may have a lot more in common.
So four pillar friendship. You don't treat the four pillar friend lightly. Four pillar friendships are kind of what makes life worth living. Okay, so let's say you walk, you know, five miles on your own, it can be quite arduous. Walk five miles with a one or a two pillar friend. Eh, it's okay. But you walk five miles with a four pillar friend, those miles just fly by. I mean, you feel more energized after walking five miles with a four pillar friend than if you just stayed at home and read a book. So how do we choose a mate? By a process of punctuated evaluation, there are a series of decision points separated by periods of stasis where we pause to decide whether to move on to the next more intimate level or pull out now before we have overcommitted ourselves. So we begin with distant sing signals and slowly but surely circle into ever closer, more intimate forms of evaluation. It begins with what does she look like? How well do they move, dance, play? They pass this initial test. We arrange to spend more time with them, success successfully, successively evaluating cues based on speech, smell, and taste. I remember this one woman I was getting increasingly attracted to, but I was kind of put off that she 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 perspired quite a bit. I just didn't didn't remember this before. I I, I never never really romanced a sweater. Like, have you ever you know romanced a woman who perspired? above average so that there were like there was you know sweat under her arms and coming down her face it, it was a little disconcerting on the other hand she was like the best looking woman that i'd ever dated so you know we lasted another year uh, we broke up five times she broke up with me five times uh and then what finally ended it was that i made a comment on her blog after she complained about me she said how should I deal? I went out to dinner with this guy and I wanted them to put my the rest of my dessert in a doggy bag, but he wanted to leave to get to the movie on time. So I never got my dessert and I just think it was really rude. And so I, I made a comment on her blog and that was it. That was it. Scorpion's air supply were pop masters. Absolutely. I'm all out of love. I can't live without you. Brilliant line. <laughs> How do we get mates to choose us? You, you watch this show and you live this show. What is a spouse and how do I get one? I'm listening to the Blackout album while listening to 40. It's better that way. <laughs> Risk-taking and sportiness are cues to which women seem to pay more than just casual attention. The young men in particular are risk-takers. Adolescent boys take many more risks. So they have much higher mortality rates in their late teens than girls do. So risk-taking signals gene quality. So the risk-taker says, watch me, I can afford to take risks because my genes are so good, I'll get away with it. So women prefer brave, risk-prone males compared with altruistic, risk-averse males as short-term mating partners. Okay, there's alpha fox but they prefer altruistic males as long-term partners. So they go for the altruistic, they go for the alpha fucks and the beta bucks. So they prefer to get their genes from males who have proven genetic quality and then rely on a safe pair of hands to see you through the long haul of childcare. The tricky bit is persuading the beta male to take the risk of being a cuckold. So homophily, that means the more you have in common with someone, underpins successful romantic relationships as much as it does successful friendships. 
men will drop their standards of mate choice as the sex ratio becomes increasingly male biased. And they will raise their standards, at least for long-term mates, when the sex ratio becomes more female biased, when men are in short supply. Men switch to more casual sex when they are in the minority, when women are forced to compete for men and can exert less power over them. When there are fewer women available and men are forced to compete for women, men become more willing to accept committed relationships. Wealth and status tend to place men at an advantage compared with their competitors. The decision on whom to choose lies with the women. So how do the two sexes allocate their phone calls to the two people they call most often? So in early adolescence, a woman's best friend is likely to be another female, but after age 18, switches to become increasingly male, reaching a peak in the early 20s, then remain relatively stable until age 40, after which it falls rapidly to become female again around age 55, then remains consistently female biased into old age. Men follow a reciprocal but slightly different pattern. After male bias preference during adolescence, a male's main core partner becomes increasingly female biased up to the age of 30, after which it declines steadily towards a low level of female bias similar to that exhibited by females. So the female curve hits its peak about seven years earlier than the males does, age 23 compared to 30. And the female peak of talking to men first remains much longer until about age 45 versus age 35 in males. So women tend to maintain a focus on their partner or spouse for about three times longer than men do for about 21 years compared to at most seven years for men. So women typically make a very early decision on which male to go for, and they stick with it, and they constantly contact him until even the dullest male finally realizes and caves. Looks like it takes the male around five years to wake up and respond reciprocally. So once a relationship has been established, it seems that men lose interest long before the women do. The focus on the female partner lasts only a few years and then it declines steadily down to a token level by middle age. The more someone idealizes their partner and switches off their reality check at the outset of the relationship, the longer they continue to be satisfied with the relationship. I, I noticed this. I had a friend who just just idolized his partner. And, and they, I mean, they were married for uh, about 30 years and he just still had this complete idealization of his wife. The more this is reciprocated, the longer the relationship will last. The moment reality strikes and you begin to see your partner for what she is, there is a slow but steady erosion in relationship satisfaction that can only ever have one outcome. Size of our group. The answer is yes. I mean, here's a bunch of casual uh, examples of human organizations that have that sort of size, somewhere between 100 and 200. Um, and these are our attempts, really, to look at real human relationships, if you like, in this context. These, these are the census sizes for hunter-gatherer groups. And so hunter, all human societies are multi-layered. So these are a sort of series of grouping layers, community layers you've got. And it's this one here, the red dots, which are the key. They're, they're all the same type of cluster of community, and they cluster very nicely around the value of 150, which is the blue line, and the red... Okay, when and why do friendships die? When people are not concerned enough, committed enough to maintain the relationship at its former level of emotional intimacy, when neither can muster the energy to do anything about it, but these relationships tend to fade quickly, almost by accident. The road to friendship is paved with good intentions to meet up again, but somehow 
never comes because too many other priorities intervene. Family relationships can weather the social equivalent of being becalmed in the mid-Atlantic because of the pull of family, the kinship premium, and because the closely integrated network of family relationships means that people don't lose track of you completely. So the kin keepers bridge the divide, keeping everyone up to date with everyone else's doings. You can never quite escape. Family tends to be more forgiving than friends. Not just of those repeated failures to contact them, but also the trickle of small breaches of trust that inevitably occur along the way. Maintaining a stable relationship. Standing up for the friend in their absence, sharing important news with the friend, providing emotional support when it is needed, trusting and confiding in each other, volunteering help when it's required, making an effort to make the other person happy. Break these rules is likely to weaken the relationship and can lead to complete relationship breakdown. When friendships break down, people are much more likely to attribute negative behaviors to the other person and positive ones to themselves. Right, a classic form of the attribution error. It can't be me that is wrong, so it must be you. Young people attach more significance to public criticism than older people do. Women place more importance on failure to apportion time equally and to give positive regard and emotional support. Men place a greater emphasis on negative events like being the target of jokes or public displays of teaching. So men are less able to cope with taunting than women because reputation seem to mean more to men than they do to women. Women are more socially proactive than men, so men often end up with a social network dominated by their wives' friends simply because the wives arrange the social events and the husbands just go along with it. Wives often encourage their husbands to contact our old male friends only to be greeted by a frustrating shrug of the shoulders. So men risk ending up with no social network other than their own family after a divorce or the death of a spouse. There's a stronger tendency for women's breakups to remain unreconciled longer than men's. Women are less forgiving than men. Women's relationships are more fragile than men's as they are much more intimate and emotionally charged. The red dotted lines are the confidence intervals around that. So they all fit really quite nicely within it. And this was our attempt, first, very first attempt to look at what it meant for you as an individual. And we asked people to tell us who they were sending Christmas cards to, not the number of cards they were sending, but who were in the household, the total number of people in the household. And that turns out to be very close to 150. The average in this data set was 154. There's a lot of variability around that. Okay, great news. Old age brings a downward spiral. All the odds are stacked against you. You find it hard to make new friends as your old ones die or move away. You have less in common with the young folk, now make up the bulk of the population. Your declining energy makes you less willing to go out as often. You're less able to take part in physical activities. Your failing cognition makes it harder to respond wittily or as engagingly as you once did in conversation, making you less interesting as a social companion because you're not familiar with the topics that interest people now because you have not kept up with social and political developments or the jokes of the latest stand-ups. Having an impoverished social life has adverse consequences for your cognitive well-being as well as your physical health. This increases the risk of dementia as well as physical illnesses that require hospitalization. Physical mobility, lack thereof, causes our withdrawal from social interaction in old age. You just find it harder to get to places where people gather socially. You eventually become housebound. And uh, then we turn to the internet. Some of us are incredibly mean and don't send any cards at all. Uh, some people send them to their butcher and their baker and their lawyer and you know all those kind of important people. But the key is that it's you know, nicely peaked here around 150. 
It turns out that the reason for that is it's a problem with your brain. And we've been able to show with uh, neuroimaging studies and a series of neuroimaging studies, and these have now been replicated by other people, so the effect really is quite robust, is that the number of friends you have is essentially a function of the size of this bit of the brain up here, right above the eyes. That's the bit that's hugely important in, in managing social interactions, it turns out. Yeah, I, I noticed dumber people tend to have fewer friends. It's not, not the exact correlation, but generally speaking, at every level of IQ, the more intelligent you are, the less likely you are to be subverted by uh, various mental health maladies. The other bit, the bits that are critical along the temporal lobe here, just sort of behind the ear, as it were, inside the skull from the ear. And it's the sort of circuitry between these two that makes up this kind of uh, social cognition circuit. That okay, let's learn about laughter, love, and social cohesion. It's been a, a day of storytelling today, basically different kinds of stories, personal stories, fictional stories, and so on. I see myself as a storyteller, but my subject of my story is really something rather different. Uh, it's about how the world works, or at least how we think at the moment the world works, and how we think at the world, the moment the way the world works is a, built on my research. So I talk mostly about my research, and uh, my research is really about the world in which we live and the virtual world in which we live. So I, my, most of my research is actually on the nature of relationships, which is obviously relationships with real people out there, but actually we build relationships inside our heads in a kind of virtual reality. So biology was way ahead of technology. It's been doing virtual reality for... Okay, so Ricardo's in the house. Ricardo, the topic is the seven pillars of friendship, which are shared ethnicity, shared religion, shared language and dialogue, dialect, growing up in the same location, having similar educational and career experiences, having similar hobbies and interests, having a similar worldview, having the same sense of humor, and having the same musical tastes. And so any of these pillars is substitutable for any other. So recognize that uh, with Laponius and with Robert Prosper, for example, we, we're a four-pillar friendship. We have four pillars, which is pretty good uh, friendship. So with Ricardo, we don't have the same dialect. We did not grow up in the same location. I don't think we've had the same educational and career experiences. We do. I suspect we have many similar hobbies and interests. We have a similar worldview, we have a similar sense of humor, and I'm not sure about musical tastes. So if we share musical tastes, then I got a four-pillar friendship with Ricardo. If not, it's a three-pillar friendship. Probably two or three million years. Uh, I'm going to talk about a... Um particular aspect of it. I brought my research team along with me uh, to help out. You'll notice we're wearing our usual uh, clothes that we wear when we do research. Um, I'm still waiting for somebody to tell me who they are. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what I'm going to talk about in particular is laughter and the role it plays in our lives and, and if you like, why we do it. It's a very, very odd thing. Uh, in the form in which we do it, it really is unique to humans. Um, it's an absolute human universal, absolutely without exception, all cultures all the way around the world uh, laugh. You can see 
you know, sort of historic. Right. So the more intense the emotional experiences you share with other people, then the closer you're, you will bond with them. So if it's intense exercise, intense laughter, intense dance, intense ritual, have, having a good meal, good drink, the more intense, the more loaded the interactions the more intimacy you'll build up. Historical jokes and people in the past uh, laugh at the same kinds of things. But laughter in itself is very contagious. It's extraordinarily contagious. Uh, if somebody else, if other people laugh, it's very difficult not to laugh with them. It's so instinctive. I remember I went to a Prometheus Books event and uh, Steve Allen, the guy who was, used to be on TV and he wrote books about the Bible and other things, he got up and he was denouncing shock jock uh, Howard Stern. And he mentioned an example of you know, a horrible thing that Howard Stern said that he didn't understand why the Columbine killers didn't have sex with the girls before they killed them. And when, when Steve Allen read that out loud, I was the only person in the room to laugh. Like I just burst out laughing. You know, 200 people in the room, I laughed. Only one. No one else joined me. But uh, someone came up to me and said, oh, I really you know, respected y your courage for, you know, you found that joke funny and you weren't going to be intimidated. Uh, in that sense. We actually get it from a perfectly normal uh, vocalization and uh, uh, visual uh, gestural um, signal that is common both in the monkeys, but particularly in the great apes. So here's a, a, a chimpanzee and a, and a young orangutan. Uh, the young orangutan is actually being tickled. Uh, they're both laughing, and this so-called rom or round open mouth face is very characteristic of this. The difference between great ape laughter uh, uh, and our own laughter is the great ape laughter is a, is a series of exhalations, inhalations. So they go, ha, 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 as it were, like that. Whereas for us, <clears throat> we've shifted it slightly, and we just give a series of exhalations, ha, 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 ha. And it becomes very exhausting because we're emptying the lungs. And that's going to become important to this story. But here's some evidence on how contagious it is. This is some of our uh, research on the... Uh, these people are watching uh, videos. Uh, the people on the group on the left uh, are watching um, uh, neutral videos, which uh, clearly nobody laughs at. Uh, it's the amount of laughter given uh, by each individual, the average amount of laughter given by each individual uh, uh, doing this. Uh, the people in the middle are watching a comedy video, stand-up comedy, but they're doing it on their own. And then the people on the right um, are watching video in a group. And you can see this huge effect, the same video, the same stand-up comedy video, the huge effect that doing it in a group has on laughter. If somebody laughs, it triggers laughter in every other uh, person in the group. We laugh even when we, the joke's in Italian and we don't understand the joke. If everybody else is... So I'm re-listening re to the great new book, The Extended Brain, and we think we do some thinking much more effectively when we're with a group. We do other thinking much more effectively when we get out and walk. We do other thinking more effectively when we are enclosed behind walls so that we, we have privacy. So... The mind is incredibly influenced by the people and the situation around us. Laughing, we can't help it. Okay, <clears throat> here's an indication of just how important uh, laughter is in the sense of your relationship, the interaction, as it were,
And uh, Elliot Blatt says, how does group sex affect friendship? It tends to tends to blow things up. Not many people in the porn industry were able to sustain their relationships. So I'm not sure sharing double penetration is going to be the secret to building lasting friendships with other blokes. But uh, feel free to share your experiences. That you are having with somebody. So this is a study we did in which we asked people at the end of each day to rate on a very kind of simple happiness scale, a standard happiness scale from psychology, psychology how satisfied you are, how contented you are with that particular... In right, if you're laughing with someone, then you're in a good place with them. But if there's no laughter between you, then your relationship's probably in trouble. That's my experience. ...interaction with one of your five closest friends, and to specify whether you did it... Uh, uh, or which, oops, we've slipped, which technique... Josh Randall says, I'm an island of consciousness. I need no one to be fully realized. You're missing out, Josh. You are missing out. We need other people. We need community. We need dance partners. We need prayer partners. We need Bible study partners. We need recovery partners. We need exercise partners. Technology, as it were, you used, whether it was a face-to-face -face interaction, uh, an interaction by Skype, an interaction on the phone, uh, an interaction by instant messaging, or by texting, or by email. Uh, and with the same group of people, right? But all, we also asked them to, to separate out those in which laughter had occurred, either real laughter or virtual laughter in the form of an emoticon or an LOL. Right, so the amount of laughter you have in your relationship is a pretty good interaction, pretty good measure of the the health of that interaction so when i've started out in relationships we've been laughing and laughing and laughing but uh, then as we start running into problems the the laughter ceases and i have found that when when the laughter ceases in my relationships the the relationship's going to end fairly quickly uh laugh out loud um uh and when you separate out the data just look what a difference laughter has on your interaction. If you laugh, somehow it makes the interaction much warmer and you're much happier about it. Uh, your feelings towards that person are kind of much elevated. So laughter is very important. Right, so I mean, that's true for live streaming. If you're joining a channel and you're able to get some laughs out of it, you'll feel much more positively towards the host, even if you don't agree with him on all sorts of theological and political and, and moral issues. So we're here to have a chuckle. We're having a chuckle, then we're doing a good thing. Uh, in the context of our everyday interactions, we we don't choose our friends. Yeah, we don't choose our friends. We, we we discover them, right? Friends are born and not made. You know, our health is largely the product of our genetics. Our career and social and sexual success, again, largely a product of our genetics. Friends, our friends are made for us. This has turned out to be one of the surprises, in a way, of our, uh, the work we've done on friendship. It turns out that the quality of friendship you have is determined by how much you share in common with that person already. So what seems to happen is you meet somebody, you invite them into your inner circle for a little bit, you go and have a few beers with them, perhaps you go out once or twice to the cinema or something, and you kind of size them up, and then depending on how many things you share in common determines whether that friendship will survive. And uh, romantic friendships 
are developed on a similar basis. So there's a famous saying, opposites attract. But generally speaking, the more you have in common with a romantic partner, as long as you're not directly related to her, the better for the health of your relationship. Five, or whether it'll grow. And among the many things, all of which are actually cultural, uh, purely cultural, and no personality effects or anything like that, they're purely cultural. One of the most important of these is sharing the same sense of humor. Okay, so these things that he says are just purely cultural. There's a substantial genetic component. So this is a little study we did on the internet, in fact. We got a whole bunch of people, uh, uh, gave them a set of jokes, and asked them just to rate them, did they think them funny or not? Simple yes or no. And that gave them a kind of humor profile. Right? So that's your humor signature. And then two weeks later, we emailed them back, and we said, um, here's uh, another person's humor profile. What sort of person, you know, is it the sort of person you might think would make a good friend? This is, we're not interested in a romantic relationship or anything, just, you know, a good friend. Is it the sort of person you'd be happy to spend time around with and so on? What we didn't tell them was that the humor profile that we sent them for this virtual person was actually their own profile, uh, but varied according to the number of uh, jokes shared in common. So they either had two out of 16 jokes. So mentalizing is something that only humans do, animals don't do it, and it's your ability to put yourself in, in, in someone else's space, try to understand what's, what's going on with somebody else. So mentalizing underpins our ability to handle metaphor and conversation. Jokes depend heavily on met metaphorical use of language. So jokes tend to consist of three or five mind states. Okay, counting the mind states, the audience member and the comedian as two of these, only a handful of jokes have six or seven mind states. So here is a second order joke, meaning there are no mind states in it other than the comedians and the audience. Right. At the airport, they asked me if anybody I didn't know gave me anything. Even the people I know don't give me anything. Right. That is a second order joke. Now here's a fifth order joke. A young boy enters a barber shop and the barber whispers to his customer, this is the dumbest kid in the world. Watch while I prove it to you. The barber puts a dollar bill in one hand and two quarters in the other and calls the boy over and asks, which do you want, son? The boy takes the quarters and leaves. What did I tell you, said the barber? That kid never learns. Later, when the customer leaves, sees the same boy coming out of the ice cream store. Hey, son, may I ask you a question? Why did you take the quarters instead of the dollar bill? The boy licked his ice cream cone and replied, because the day I take the dollar, the game is over. So when we asked people to rate these jokes for funniness, the ratings increased with the number of mind states. So jokes that involve several protagonists are funnier than those that involve only one, up to a level of five mind states. After that, they quickly become less and less funny. So when there are more than five minds involved, people just cannot get their head around the point of the joke. the same uh, six out, sorry, 18, six out of 18 jokes the same, 12 out of 18 jokes the same, or 16 out of 18 jokes the same. And these are their ratings on a simple affiliation index, uh, you know, how likely would you be to uh, see them as a possible friend of these virtual individuals. And just look at the increase 
in, yes, this is a really nice person, I could make a friend here, uh, as a consequence of just sharing the same sense of humor. That's the only thing they know about this person. They don't even know whether it's male or female. Right? So <clears throat> friendship also, uh, sorry, uh, the, 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 the extent to which you have that sharing of this particular trait, this sense of humor, also in terms affects not only whether you uh, think they might make a good friend, but also how generous you are. So we also ask them, you know, would you lend this person a thousand pounds? If push came to shove and they suddenly had a, uh, a medical problem, would you be prepared to uh, uh, give them a kidney, for example? And you see pretty much the same kind of effect. In other words, the people that we're most generous to are the people we fear feel share, we share uh, most in common with. Okay, I think that will do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.